Hi, I'm Amanda. And I'm Kim. And this is The Department, a podcast about trends, taste, brands, and products. Welcome to episode 23. This is actually an episode about color trends that we've been wanting to talk about for a little while. But before we get into it over here, you know, please make sure to follow us on your favorite streaming service if you don't already. And if you have a moment, uh, I heard it's like really trendy to give us a star (laughs) rating on Apple Podcasts. And if you're feeling really expressive, please throw in a review. Um, and it, you know, this episode, it, it's, it does revolve around a lot of visuals. So we're talking a lot about color trends and you may want to reference these images, these colors, these pictures, um, just so everything kind of come together and it's all going to be available on our website, department.world, um, along with, you know, all of our other show notes, all of our links to articles, you know, we definitely get pretty in depth here, uh, also, you know, we have a great Instagram account that features tons of content. So you can find us at underscore the underscore department. It's growing a really great community and we would love to have you join. And we have a new feature that we're testing out. Um, it actually is kind of, we're sharing it with my other podcast, Close Horse, and it's the Close Horse Hotline, which has been an incredible tool over at Close Horse because all of the listeners who have an opinion or have a story to share can just call up. It's actually a voicemail. You don't talk to either of us, but you can share your own stories. And I was telling Kim, I feel like there's a need for this because so many of you, you know who you are, the midweek texters <laughs> who, let's say it's Tuesday, Wednesday, you text me to tell me your reactions to this week's episode. What if you could call and leave a voicemail instead and it would be featured in the next episode. That's right. It's your 15 Mm -hmm. seconds of fame. So (laughs) trying it out using my close horse number, if this turns into just like, you know, it's tying up all the circuits, you're all calling in, then maybe we'll get a separate number. The number for now at least is 717-925-7417. I'm going to give you a pro tip. I think you can only leave a message that it's about two and a half minutes long, but you get cut off, call back because through the powers of technology, I will merge the two calls together in a seamless <laughs> mega message using, you know, editing software. <laughs> mega message. Uh, and you can actually also find it on the website too, if you did not get that number. Um, so just go to the department.world and that number, it's right there in the, the side nav. It's got, it says, it says hotline. It's got a little phone. Just click on it and, you know, it'll take you right there. Uh, so, you know, Amanda, this is the first episode of the new year, mm-hmm. uh, 2021. Do you have any trend predictions for this year? <laughs> I actually, I mean, this is like a big one. I think that we could see the era of the influencer as we know it ending and morphing oh. into a more genuine and accessible version. Yeah. I mean, it has been making its way to that 
part of the influencerdom lately. I mean, uh, it's, it's called micro-influencers, which are apparently mm-hmm. a, hot, a hot thing where people are looking for that that genuineness and that connection. Yeah, totally. And I think we're seeing more and more people are banding together, creating Instagram accounts that call out the big influencers on, you know, some of their not so great behavior, like photoshopping themselves down to be like size triple zero or traveling during the pandemic, being sort of like tone deaf about displaying their money. You know what I mean? Uh, Maybe practicing racist microaggressions, all kinds of things. And I think more than ever, we're like, hey, we're going through a major thing right now. We want to see people who are like us, who inspire us, because what they do is within our reach. That's awesome. I like to What do you that. think? What do you think is coming this year? Uh, I think we're going to continue to see a value shift on how people and consumers in general um, trend towards that conscious consumerism where mm-hmm. it's not like value for money um, products. People are just going to be waking up more about, you know, their purchasing habits, you know, what, what their dollar means. You know, I mean, you have a whole podcast on it. We talk about it a lot. <laughs> <laughs> we talk about it a lot. I mean, the like the demand is so high for consumers to actually be educated about what they're buying, where they're buying it from, how the market really works and oh, yeah. making better decisions and, you know, not necessarily purchasing based on price, which is kind of what it's been for such a long time. I mean, a race to the bottom mm-hmm. for a very long time, probably starting during the recession of 2008. But like, it's just getting worse and worse that we yeah. like don't even know how much stuff costs anymore. Yeah. We don't know the real value. And how like marketing angles can manipulate consumers. And uh, yeah, I think we're all wising up. I love it. Did you know that episode number nine on conscious consumerism is our top listen to early episodes? Wow. That's crazy. We definitely owe you an update sometime soon because I am constantly trying to remove more and more of the plastic and waste from my Mm -hmm. life. And I'm always like, oh, I should talk about this. Like I'm full-time using a conditioner bar now. Uh, I have found a few zero waste makeup brands that I'm pretty obsessed with. And I am finally going to take the plunge into shampoo bar in the next few weeks. I mean, that actually leads me to another question, you know, ever since that episode. And I mean, and obviously, you know, we've all been kind of trying to lean towards more sustainable products and choices. You know, I have personally been trying out testing some of these replacements, you know, and Mm -hmm. there's definitely some winners and some losers. Yeah, Um, for sure. What's what? Do you have a winner and a loser? Um, well, I'm really obsessed with this cosmetics brand called Axiology, which makes fully zero waste makeup. It's all like sticks that come wrapped in paper, like a crayon. You can use them all over your face, your eyes, your lips, your cheeks, and I love them. They're vegan. They're a small business. They're owned by women of color. They're made here in the U.S. They show their manufacturing processes all the time. Uh, I I love it. One that I wouldn't say that has been a miss for me, but that I'm still trying to master is the wool dryer balls. (laughs) Because I have currently, even right now while I'm recording this, a major static problem that I'm experiencing. (laughs) Oh, yeah. So if anybody who's listening has a pro tip for 
like a zero waste way of not having static or making these dryer balls more effective at removing static from my clothing. Like as a person who wears tights every day, I am like my hair is sticking on my end, my clothes are riding up. It's just, I'm shocking the cat. It's terrible. I'm sure that there has to be something like maybe there's some sort of Oh, I, you know, because you can put um, like aromatherapy, you know, like essential oils onto the balls. Right, which is what I do. Yeah, that's what I do. That's what I do. I'm wondering if there's something, something else I could throw in there, there too. Because has- I don't want to give up. I don't want to give up. It's, you know what, whether you care about waste or not, it's really nice to just not have to deal with like the disposal of all those dryer sheets. They are everywhere. One less than one. Yeah. Constantly they showing up. The house. Yes. yes. So I'm not I'm not going back to those, but I would love to hear any suggestions mm-hmm. anyone else has out there. Yeah. Um, for me, I would say uh, I, I've been using Imperfect and I really like it, um, you know. Mm-hmm. As, me too. Love them. An easy way to get some groceries and, um, you know – it, it, they also just, it's it's like it's kind of like a mini Trader Joe's you know they do make some of their own stuff that's like okay mm-hmm. um, but it's just it's kind of nice to have I, I wouldn't say that they are like a bargain um, no every once in a while there'll be a hot deal on there yeah, definitely um, they had Olipop for a couple weeks and yes. I was losing my mind over it you know I'm a fan yeah. but it's it's a fair price for what it is. I'll say yeah. that. I mean, and for the convenience, you know, yes, like having that, yes. that show up, it's just awesome. Um, you know, and I think I've had a, a couple kind of, eh, um, you, uh, Neil got some clean cult uh, dishwash soap and it was really watery. It was kind of like, Ugh. It, it was kind of like that, um, like like the, the dishwash soap that you actually get at, at Trader Joe's, which doesn't really soap up very well and doesn't really. Um. Yes. Mm. Why is that? <laughs> yes. I hate that that Trader Joe's stuff. I mean, yeah. The the guys at Graflands would always get it, and I would just always complain. I'm just like, like this does not clean anything. This is like everything is always greasy and gross. Like just get Mrs. Myers. So we actually just went back to yeah. Mrs. Myers. But I have a feeling that they, you know. Most of these companies are trying to develop other things that are going to reduce plastic. Um, I think that they're just making different packs with, you know, like uh, like Mrs. Myers is with the, the Grove Collaborative. And, like, they really want to be mm-hmm. zero plastic. And they are still, you know, they're still working with them. And I have a feeling that they're probably – there's a bunch of a bunch of things being developed. I mean, I've even seen some really cool stuff from, like um, – what's that? Uh, G- G- Z uh, – there's another main, kind of mainstream, one of the old classic ones. Um, seventh Generation. Yeah, seventh Generation has come up with some like different like um, powdered soaps and things. So, mm-hmm. you know, hopefully we'll see some fun stuff there. Um, I think we will. And I will say Grover Collaborative makes a bunch of their own brand that's like zero waste and refillable. It used to come in a plastic bag. Now it comes in a metal bottle. Hmm. And their soap, like dish soap and hand soap, I think is really good. Okay. So I would just ho- – that's one that I found to be very successful. And then I – Neil got some of those reusable paper towels, the ones that you – Okay. Tell me how those went. And it, they're the ones that um are, you you use them for a little while and then you could throw them out. Uh-huh. And, and like the, the whole kitchen was littered with these things that had been washed and were drying – and they were everywhere. Uh, it was just like it, it sounds bad for apartment living. I think you know? it was terrible. Like I'm like this makes a lot of sense for maybe some different solutions, but not to replace all of your paper towel needs because like you're just, I mean, the amount of paper towels that we use is, is pretty like astounding, and just having mm-hmm. these things constantly 
everywhere was just lasted a couple of days and finally we were just like this this is just this is not working <laughs> <laughs> like we need we need real paper towels like they will biodegrade of course you know it's not good for the environment you know destroying trees but this this is this is not the solution um yeah so that was kind of those those were some some of my forays into sustainability, but I think that you know this this new year we're going to see so much more out there. Oh my gosh, I'm so excited because it's becoming a mainstream idea. Mm-hmm. I was telling Dustin that I went to Target, and even in the like mouthwash section, oh, yes. they had zero waste mouthwash that came in a metal bottle, and it was like scope or something. Mm. All right, well, are you ready to jump into it? Yeah, let's do it. All right, so you know. The annual grand decree of Pantone's color of the year for 2021 was released recently. I think, you know, just a couple of weeks ago, um, much to the snores of both Amanda and I, you know, for the, for the second time since they started doing color of the year, Pantone released two colors. Um, oh. And <laughs> this year they have a bright yellow called illuminating and a very, very basic stone gray called Ultimate Gray. And Amanda, what are your thoughts? Oh, <laughs> uh, the yellow I would best describe as the yellow of the lines on a road. Mm. And I, uh, man, I would just tell you, go to the Pantone Instagram. The most recent posts, which are all celebrating this color combo, are so depressing. And Literally, one of the posts is a gray road with the yellow stripe oh down it. Oh my god! I mean, like that's the color palette we're looking at right now, and i I can't I can't figure out what's going on there. Well, you want me to you want me to tell you? Yeah, tell me because it's <laughs> it seems depressing to me. Even though I know yellow is supposed to be cheery, when you combine it with a gray, it's it's depressing. Yeah. Well, so yellow has been trending for at least three years. In fact, this yellow could be considered something that's really trendy or actually was really trendy in around like two, uh, 2018, which the industry people proclaimed Gen Z yellow, which was supposed to usurp millennial pink. But this was back in 2018, you know, when we've had a couple of years. Um, and I'm going to talk about this a little bit more later. Uh, but I've been finding that these colors of the year, when they used to be at like the forefront of trend in fashion, are now like a, a, two to three years behind a color trend. No, it's totally true. When I was researching millennial pink and the year that, you know, like Pantone picked it as its color of the year – Everybody was like, uh, yeah, I don't know where you've been, but this has been around since like yeah. at least the last three years. And I was like, oh my God, they're right. I And I, I'm imagining because, you know, we're going to get into this a little bit later. A lot of it's about marketing dollars, you know. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And like I, all I, things, it's a money-making scheme, it turns out. Hashtag capitalism. <laughs> it's a money-making scheme uh, sometimes because sometimes. sometimes they pick colors that are just like, – we know in the industry are just unacceptable and no customer will buy. They don't it's like true. purple and they don't like orange and they mm-hmm. don't like green. Like I know this for a fact. And even yellow mm-hmm. is like a 50-50 situation. It is. It has to be a really specific shade of yellow. I'll tell you based on my experience – of many years now of yes. buying women's clothing, this yellow, wait, what's it called? What's Illuminating. Called? Yeah, it's not it. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> this, this is, is like, 
this is a tank. Yeah, yeah, this this yeah. is usually in like in in your your dogs. We call them dogs in the industry when when they don't sell. This is a dog. Not to be confused with shoe dogs. Not shoe dogs are different. <laughs> but uh, yeah, this is like oof. like I would not place an order of any clothing in this color because I would be very very nervous about its performance. It's a good color for like an accessory, and I I do like these. I you know, mm-hmm. and I wear them. I'll, I'll wear this kind of yellow. Because I really like yellow. Um, sometimes I think, Amanda, you haven't seen me in a while, but I wear some yellow sometimes. Um, wow. That's pretty wild. But, you know, Pantone is meant for, it's not just for the fashion industry. It's also for, you know, consumer goods and home goods, you know, interiors. This yellow is really hard for a couch also because, you know, people think it's going to get stained and dirty and things like that. And yellow can, mm-hmm. it, when it gets kind of dirty or like funky, it like it really shows. And that's one of the reasons why at Craftlands we don't do a lot of ye- this yellow because it just will immediately look like garbage. Um, yeah, yeah, it's it's a t- it's a tough one. Um, I just think that uh, I mean we're gonna you know Kim's gonna go through mm-hmm. these colors. There have been colors in certain years that were ideal for all applications, whether it was clothing, interiors, accessories, makeup. And then there were colors oh. that you're like, oh, oh, I don't know where you use that at all. So just so disappointing. Yeah. Well you're, well, you're just like a buyer and you're like, that's the color. Are you kidding yeah. me? What the hell am I supposed to do with this? <laughs> like this is Barney <laughs> purple. Are you kidding me? Yeah. No yeah. one's buying yeah. this. Um, Okay. Well, anyway, what I found is the color of the year. They're usually a couple of years behind the trend. And I really think that they wait oftentimes to, for that color to like really maximize its mainstreaminess before they'll actually get behind a quote unquote trendy color. Like one that maybe they haven't defined. Um, one that just the market has basically been telling them is trendy. So I think they, you know, and I'll, I'll talk a little bit about the history of the Pantone color of the year, but it's definitely not a trendy um, signifier. Like you don't go to Pantone to define your trends technically. Um, mm-hmm. So this is a pretty commercial palette. It's kind of marketable. It's pretty consumer friendly for, you know, different applications, particularly that gray, you know, essentially these colors symbolize strength and hope. The Pantone website describes their selection as ultimate gray and illuminating are two independent colors that highlight how different elements come together to support one another which best expresses the mood for Pantone Color of the Year 2021. Practical and rock solid, but at the same time warming and optimistic. The union of ultimate gray and illuminating is one of strength and positivity. It is a story of color that encapsulates deeper feelings of thoughtfulness with the promise of something sunny and friendly. And it goes on and on. Like if you go to their website, it, it, they're like oh fortitude and oh. aspiration and like really a lot of this like you know mumbo jumbo around around yeah that's like every that's definitely like their thing yeah. because when I was researching millennial pink too I was like oh my god just be quiet highfalutin just lots and lots of copy um, yeah you know and like the, the a lot of other companies particularly paint companies have embraced doing the color of the year because they saw how successful pantone was so you know you can look at some different ones like deluxe has unveiled a reassuring 
earthy beige hue called Brave Ground as its color of the year for 2021. And Brave Ground was selected as an elemental hue that reflects the strength we can draw from nature, a growing desire to align more with the planet uh, and looking towards the future. So pretty much anyone can... You know, you can do, you can create a story around probably any goddamn color out there. Um, there's a lot of people that were saying that 2021 really should have been more of an elemental color for Pantone. Um, so that you know, it's it's definitely an interesting conversation, and, and everyone always has an opinion. You know, you, you can go online and read about the Pantone colors of the year, and you know, some people embrace it, they love it. Some people just think it's you know, it's just um, a bad choice. Um, mm-hmm. So this actually begs to ask, ask the question, what is Pantone color of the year? <laughs> Aren't you begging? <laughs> First and foremost, the color of the year is meant to be aspirational as well as draw some PR momentum. Pantone has been doing the color of the year since 1999, picking the color of the year for the next year, which is what it they always do. So they, you know, they, they, they pick a little bit ahead. Um, they do, they only launch with like the launch in December for that January. Mm-hmm. So they don't, they don't give a giant time window or anything. Um, right. They set the precedent for a bunch of other paint and trend companies that also release their own colors of the year. Um, the color of the year started as a marketing tool to liven up the color standards business, put a little hype mm. and serious PR spectacle into that game. So starting in 2000, the first official color chosen was Cerulean, a light blue said to capture the angst about Y2K. Oh my god! They say this color represents the millennium because of the calming Zen state of mind it induces. And when you think of that light blue Cerulean, you know, you think of, you know, Clueless and you definitely think of the kind of that time period, you know? Yeah, no, I think that one was successful. Definitely. I mean, I obviously I was like not having like a fashion career at that point. Mm-hmm. But I remember that like so much clothing yeah, and wearing so much clothing in that color yeah, and nail polish. Like it was very relevant. Like they came out with a banger, yeah. I guess. I think, yeah. And I think it, that, that color lasted because it really did start in like the mid nineties and then go into the 2000s. Mm-hmm. So it was, it was kind of yeah. the millennial pink of its time. Uh, it was, it was. <laughs> so since founding, Pantone has figured out how to capitalize on this more and more. They now enter into licensing agreements with various companies from nail polish to hotel suites so that the color is everywhere. And these brands are on trend as well. So in essence, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. Ultimately, the color of the year and the colors they forecast for the season are really about selling merchandise and informing a similar palette brands use in unison to come together on a trend. Um, so essentially, they'll announce color of the year and the the world, the marketplace will be flooded with that color. So the more customers see that color, the more they lean into it, essentially. So it's like a catalyst for a color trend and it makes them, them appear as well, to be a reliable resource for color. Ugh, so sketch. So sketch. I knew it. I've always suspected this. I'll say yeah. that. Because they've, and we're going to go into this, but they have really forced through some colors over the years. They, yes, they have. Um, <laughs> and interestingly, you know, there's been a couple articles uh, about this, but the colors are designed to create obsolescence. 
Mm. As you know. So after a few months, the color loses interest and it's considered passe because it was last year or last month's even color. Previous year's Pantone branded coffee mugs, for example, are often seen marked down. The annual updates on iPhone colors, for instance, is meant for consumers to covet a new phone every year and get the new Pantone color update. Boo. <laughs> so Pantone officially defines their choice and methodology as a symbolic color selection, a color snapshot of what we see taking place in our global culture that serves as an expression of a mood and an attitude. Trends across all categories and in industries reflect the culture we live in. As marketers, our primary goal to be successful is to connect with people. And to do that, it is important to be in touch with these trends. So just a lot of like mumbo jumbo, a lot of chit chat, a lot of words. Um, <laughs> the, business, the Business Insider came up with a really compelling article this year after the 2021 colors were announced called and it was called Pantone's color of the year are intended to reflect resilience and hope for 2021. But the annual decision also has a trickle down effect on everything from high fashion to iPhones. Um, Avery exa uh, examines how Pantone's color of the year is meant to be a statement that they obviously serve another purpose, setting the tone for the consumer products industry and kickstarting a trickle down effect that can last for years. Hartman gives this reference that I think we will all relate to that cerulean was the color of the year in 2000, as we mentioned. Then there's this iconic scene in the 2006 film, The Devil Wears Prada, that helps explain the color phenomenon. In the film, Anne Hathaway's character, Andy, quietly scoffs at two similar-looking turquoise belts someone has just described as being so different. Andy's reaction leads Meryl Streep's character, Miranda Priestley, to turn on her and unleash a seemingly calm, yet undeniably eviscerating explanation of the power of the fashion industry and its trickle-down effect on consumer products. To drive home her point, Priestley uses Andy's blue sweater as an example. And mind you, it's actually not really cerulean, but let's just, let's just go with this. Um, <laughs> Okay, it's not just blue, it's cerulean. And for four years prior, designers Oscar de la Renta and Issey Laurent had both used cerulean in their runway collections. The color then made its way through other designers' collections, into department stores, and finally into the average person's closet. She says that blue represents millions of dollars and countless jobs. The same cerulean that two years prior was chosen for the, for the Pantone color of the year, technically. And by the way, Amanda, did you know that that cerulean basically is back again, according to Pantone's New York runway report? I mean, I would say that cerulean makes more sense as a color of the year this year than the other two colors yeah. that I picked. There's something about it that feels fresh and optimistic to me. And I guess that's, even though I realize that Pantone, all this color of the year stuff is nonsense, I really thought that that's the kind of direction they would go this year, you know, that it made more sense. I think that they wouldn't do that because last year was blue and they don't, mm. they don't do a similar color with like right next to each other. Well, and last year's blue was a, a last year's blue. I will, I will get into last year's yeah, blue. Yeah. Yeah. 
So the color of the year is determined by a top secret group of industry experts. The annual selection is run by the consulting department known as the Pantone Institute. (laughs) (laughs) A month before the announcement, Pantone actually collaborates with various brands to unleash an avalanche of products in the exact hue they specify. No matter if that color is flattering or works in the product, Pantone is a big business. And here is why um, the 2015 Color Marketing Group survey found that 85% of of customers say color affects their purchasing decisions. So people come to Pantone and they expect to make a lot of money off of them. So it makes a lot of sense for them to try to find a color that would sell. Mm -hmm. Uh, But but we, we know that that's not always the case. And <laughs> on a side note here, I swear, and I maybe I'm maybe I'm recalling this incorrectly, but I swear when I was at Oak, the two owners were on the Pantone's color selection board one year. Wow. Like with, with Stephen Allen and like a bunch of other people. I could have sworn and like they had to go through this process of picking the color of the year. I think it was like I don't know, like 2008, 2009, but all we did was wear black. So it was kind of hilarious that they were chosen. <laughs> so I was like, is that right? That doesn't make any sense, but maybe, I don't know. um so you know i have on i'll have on the website like all of the colors for that were leading up to this from 2000 to 2019 for you to take a look at i mean you can also go to the pantone website it's very easy to reference um but there were a few years that kind of stood out you know if you're looking at at the different like socio trends fashion trends like all these things you know um their monumental dates, like kind of looking at them to see what they actually signified and what Pantone did to reflect that. So 2002, um, after the September 11th attacks, Pantone chose true red in dedication to the event. It was a remembrance of the fallen and courageous and chosen as a patriotic and powerful color. It was also a representation of love and something that Pantone believed was needed during the year. And I think that was a good color selection and it was one that was not based on fashion it was based on people and humanity and it was a good color for clothing makeup products like it was actually a really flattering red because one thing we'll talk about as kim goes through some of these colors is that no human could wear them like some of these colors have been way more successful than others for sure i love that this one was a good color that also was like a commodity, you know, mm-hmm. like I like, I like that it was successful in all ways. Well, yeah. I mean, at, at that time, I think, you know, it was like pre-recession, but still there was a lot of like hesitance. Mm-hmm. Having product out in the market that would sell is really, really important. And, you know, this was also before they really were commodifying Pantone. This right. was just like a, you know, a marketing angle. Yeah. Uh, so then in 2006, Sand Dollar, which is essentially a khaki it's like the it's the color of a khaki pant like a dockers you know i i remember this color and being like what, what? am i gonna make with this i was in accessories yeah. then i'm like this is a hard one a hat is a hard look by your face this is a tough color yeah <laughs> so sand dollar was chosen to express concerns about the 2006 economy as a warm neutral shade it relaxes and soothes nerves because it reminds us of the desert and soft sandy beaches. So, so you can't afford to go on the vacation, but you can wear Docker's khaki instead. <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah. 
like, wouldn't you want to do like a turquoise or like, you know, something like brighter and and, and more optimistic? Yeah, this is like, this wah, wah. is the color of all the walls and furniture in my house when I was a kid because my mom was so into that like mm-hmm. beige minimalism kind of vibe that was going on in the 80s. Mm-hmm. And so I see this color and I'm immediately like, nope, next. Next, exactly. I mean, this is like, it reminds me of like, I used to work at a bread shop and I had to wear like, <laughs> khaki, khaki pants and like it reminds yeah. me, and I hated them because they were so ugly. This is uh, what it reminds me of, like a gap yes. pant, a gap. It, it is. It was like 2006 was the year of Gap or something. Wait, when was when was the the those Gap ads with the khaki dancing people? Now I'm wondering if it was around this time. Wait, hold on. I'm going to Google it right now. Gap ads, khaki pants, Gap commercial, khaki swing, 2006. <gasps> yeah. Shut 2006. Up. There really? you go. That's yeah. wow. Yeah. Well, Nailed there you it. go. Yeah. Nailed it. That is so fascinating. So in 2009, we see glamorously named Mimosa to express hope, reassurance, as well as optimism and innovation to counterbalance the economic uncertainty and political change. This color is kind of like a dingyish yellow that is often unflattering on a lot of skin tones. Yeah, this was not this was not good. Yeah. For on the fashion end, we could not sell this. We tried mm-hmm. for sure, but it's it's a rough right. one. Right, it's like a, you know like everyone is kind of laid off or or in the middle of like full like economic uncertainty as they keep talking about it, and they're walking around wearing, wearing a yellow dress or like a yellow hat. I don't nope. really mm, No, mm. no. Nice try, guys. That's why I'm like why did they repeat this essentially for this year? Yeah. They I mean, I think because of Gen Z yellow and they and they maybe they got a lot of pressure. For like for maybe. bringing this yellow in because there Ugh. there maybe there was some marketability about that yellow, yeah. And then this one, this is actually a really fascinating one. This is 2016. So for the first time ever, there were two colors chosen together as color of the year. This choice coincided with the discussions. This is actually really interesting that they are framing these choices and these colors, and you'll find out in a second why. Um, but they're framing it as discussions of societal movements towards gender equality and fluidity. And so they picked these two colors. It's like a light blue, basically cerulean that's called serenity and rose quartz, which is essentially, essentially like acne rose quartz, like, I'm sorry, acne millennial pink. Mm -hmm. Um, So they're basically saying that it's like this, the duality of gender equality is is represented in these two colors. So they say the warm embracing rose tone and the tranquil blue reflected the need for connection and relaxation in turbulent times. This <laughs> you know and I think this was a really popular year for products for Pantone's products. Millennial Pink oh, was for sure. hot 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 and 2016 yeah. we saw a lot of Millennial Pink on the runways already. You know that those were already planned way before Pantone even came out with this. So I think they kind of jumped on on the trend when the trend was already kind of there. And like I like I said, I think Pantone's really kind of already behind like at least a year or two. Um so, you know, men is already going to be talking about millennial pink. So I think this is them just getting on board and being pressured to to actually use this as one of the colors of the year because it's just so everywhere and it was such a big deal. And it was actually shocking that they hadn't talked about it already or had had made it the color of the year back in like, you know, I don't know, 2010. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. 
Yeah, it's it's interesting how behind the times it kind of was. Mm-hmm. But, you know, anything pink, even when they did it, because this was such an astounding color that essentially defined a generation, this, everything turned to gold, you know? And then everyone was yeah. doing it. Like, it wasn't just fashion. It was everywhere. This has to be, like, their best color ever. Yeah. Their past year. It has to be. Coincidentally, maybe, because it just happened to be the right time. Mm-hmm. But I also think that... If you look at these two colors, they they have so many easy adaptations in both fashion and like interiors, actual objects. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, I know Le Creuset made a series based on these colors. Like it was everywhere yeah. and it was a very hot commodity because it was like easy on the eyes. Like so you know? nostalgic for the 90s. Yeah, exactly. yeah. Um, and then in 2019, you know, on this um, – on this podcast, we talk a lot about 2018 um, and like that, you know, it's being able to see, you know, 2018 definitely like changed a lot of things. So, you know, what did they pick for 2019 and coral? They picked something called living coral, um, which is a distillation of pink. It was actually really wearable. Um, I've worked in a lot of companies where coral was actually one of our top selling colors. Um, and I did see this everywhere in the market. Pantone says living coral welcomes and encourages lighthearted activity, symbolizing our innate need for optimism and joyful pursuits. Living coral embodies our desire for playful expression. And this color was really controversial. There's actually a lot of articles out there of people being really upset about this color. You know, Trump came into the office, Brexit lingered, and many people argue that this color was tone deaf um, because it was so like fresh and lovely. Um, and, you know, it seemed to just, just kind of almost support all of this garbage that was happening all around and not making a stance in, you know, how dire, you know, the society was. Um, also, it was tone deaf because living corals being decimated and the color and their conversation around it failed to highlight the ongoing destruction of coral reefs. They didn't even mention it. Someone came out, there was another brand brand or designer that came out with their their updated um, coral, which was like dead coral, which is basically like a, a really, really light blue, white, like white light blue. And they're like, this is what the color of the year should be. Um, uh, but I do think that they might have chosen this color because they got a lot of pressure from, from all of the people that they worked with. Since the previous two colors, which was an you know, one was an ultraviolet, which is this extremely gauche, like repelling purple and greenery, which is this like kind of kermity green, Ch- two colors that are just completely unmarketable. I'm just telling you, it's just they, they don't work, at least for fashion. They might be able to work for uh, accessories or something. They don't work for fashion. Yeah. Yeah. And they were, they were really rough. <laughs> I, I think that, that, that um, they, they needed to pick something that would sell. I think so too. And a lot of people say the same thing about the year they chose Rose Quartz and Serenity because the previous years before that had been a nightmare. There was Emerald (laughs) in 2013. That does not sell. That was – it did not sell, period. I Like every retailer everywhere bought that like their pop Mm -hmm. color and no one would wear it. And I still see some of that here and there like at thrift stores and whatnot. And I'm like, oh, Emerald was terrible. But then the next year was that radiant orchid. And at least you could say emerald, you could do a great eyeliner yes. with it. it or a nail it's, It looks good against the skin. 
Like it's a good, it, it really does. looks pretty on a lot of a lot, everyone's skin tones. It's just, it's, it's, people have weird feelings about green, but as Kim mentioned, the only color they have more weird feelings about is purple. Yes. So they followed with radiant orchid, which was the worst shade of purple. Putrid. Yeah. It didn't have applications for anything that made sense. Mm-hmm. And so those two years were such a nightmare. They followed mm-hmm. then with a brown. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. They were like, we give up. Here's a brown. It was like a purpley brown. It was like a – Yeah, I remember it was Marsala. Marsala, yes. Dude, we tried so hard to make clothes out of Marsala. Yeah. We made T-shirts. Yeah. We made earrings. We tr- we tried it all. No one wanted it. I, that's the kind of color that only sells in like the fall, winter. Yes, yes. It, you know what? It looks great in a suede or leather accessory. Mm-hmm. That mm-hmm. is it. It was such a hard color. It, and I. this was interesting to me too, is that it seemed that that specific Pantone was really challenging to apply to certain fabrics because everything that would come in would either be too pink, too brown, or too purple. And so we were constantly rejecting samples. Oh my God. I, I think that three years of just really horrible colors made Pantone say, okay, this year we're going to pick two colors that yep. cannot lose because Serenity is so similar to Cerulean, which was a hit mm-hmm. for them. It is. Yeah. And it's Millennial Pink had been around for years now. So they were like, this was their golden ticket. But then they squandered all that goodwill with greenery and ultraviolet. Oh, no. Greenery. The greenery was really hard. That was yeah. a really hard color. And I mean, uh, I think people started to lose faith in Pantone after Greenery came up because they're like, they were just like, this is just not going to sell. <laughs> like, like I'm not investing in this. Yeah, I think so too. And, you know, I was telling Kim that I was trying to, I tried so hard to figure out when and why the Sephora collaboration with Pantone ended because it went on for quite a while. And, uh, it seemed to end around the era of, I want to say greenery, because I just think they couldn't apply these colors into cosmetics anymore and have it be successful. It's like a color of 80s. It's like it's so off-trend. Yeah, it's really hard. Uh, I did read, I found, I found a Sephora forum where people were lamenting that Sephora had ended the collab with Pantone because finally living coral was a color they would be interested in buying in makeup. <laughs> oh, I mean, did someone go in and just pull out some corals and send them some some different brands? I, I don't know. That would be really cute. That'd be like <laughs> some good community because I feel like it's a timeless lipstick color. You'll find it. But yeah, uh, find I, it. I do think that that was their attempt at being like, let's pick a color that is sellable. It's still a little I think tough. So. For certain applications, but it uh, like there's no way anytime soon they're going to reach the heights of the year they picked Millennial Pink, right? But I feel like it was better than it had been in a while. Yeah, I mean, live and coral. That color was also really popular and had been gaining ground in the market. I think since maybe 2018, 2017. Like I was seeing tons of coral. Yes, but now I would say if I see coral clothing, I'm like, ugh. Dated. Exactly. Goes back to that obsolescence. Yeah. 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 Exactly. So 2020. So the Pantone color of year, of course, it was chosen in 
2019, you know, before the whole pandemic happened, um, and the color of the year was classic blue. Great uh, controversy. God. It's just, it's a basic blue. Um, it's kind of like a what the fuck moment in the industry. Nobody would have ever guessed that a primary blue would ever have been chosen as something um, that was supposed to be trendsetting, you know? Mm-hmm. Um Hilariously, Evan Nicole Brown published an article in Fast Company called Pantone's Color of the Year is Awful. (laughs) I mean, it's not like it's awful like some of the other colors, greenery or ultraviolet, but it's like this color already exists as like what you wear to go to work at the bank. You know what I mean? Yeah. it's It's not a fashion color because most retailers are buying things in navy already. Which is, this is essentially Navy, right? I mean, it's just like, what's special about this? Well, and maybe, you know what? I can probably argue that this is like Normcore. Yeah. Just coming out in Pantone. But like so late, so mm-hmm. long after so, fact. Of course, they will always come out a couple, a couple of years late. Okay, well, so Evan Nicole Brown goes on to say, classic blue is the color equivalent of watching Friends. Classic <laughs> blue is forgettable, as pedestrian, and as safe as a TV show about six people who all look alike. I'm not offended by classic blue, but I'm offended that Pantone has assigned it as the vitally important role of ushering in a new decade. And I think that's really important. 2020 is the classic yeah. blue was chosen as the new I decade color. I hadn't even thought of that. It like set us up for mediocrity. So basically 2020 is Pantone's fault. It is. I think we can blame Pantone for all of the issues. <laughs> <laughs> So what she, so what she says is particularly one that follows a decade as tumultuous as the 2010s. Classic blue feels aggressively 1997. It's an odd choice because in recent years Pantone has taken pains to make its color of the year culturally relevant. That's why 2019's Living Coral was meant to represent our natural surroundings and at the same time a lively presence within social media. And 2018's Ultraviolet was supposed to suggest the intrigue of what lies ahead. Pantone, the leading color trend and palette curation company since 1962, describes classic blue as a timeless and enduring blue hue, elegant in its simplicity, adding suggestive of the sky at dusk and reassuring qualities of the thought-provoking classic blue highlight our desire for the dependable and stable foundation on which to build as we cross a threshold into a new era. To me, the hue calls to mind Facebook's logo oh. and my Google, Doc, Google Docs oh, icon. <laughs> my God. I mean, I'm literally looking at a Google yeah. Doc right now. Yeah, me too. It's and like, it is. It's exactly the color. And isn't it kind <laughs> of, it's maybe a little bit darker, but it reminds me of a the bubble on your phone. It is. The bubble on your phone. Exactly. She says, a vivid blue reminder of data surveillance and the tireless demands of work in 2019 doesn't exactly soothe the soul. And I think what she, she has the most logical and hilarious explanation of kind of how everyone just feels of just, just the, the, the disappointment we all had for this 2020 choice. Um, there is one funny thing and, you know, I'm going to talk about this at a different point. Um, this color actually has become rather popular within the interior design realm and mm. where it's, it's a, a design trend I'm going to talk about called Kindercore. 
And this classic blue is actually super popular. It actually, it sits within people's um, homes. And I think we're seeing that trickle down effect happening where, or, you know, maybe they're just ahead of their times. Maybe they're defining a trend here. Maybe for the first time, you know, in a, in a few years, they're actually ahead of something, which I think they're constantly, I think they're constantly trying to be ahead of something. They just are like missing it. Yeah, it's kind of crazy because I was starting to feel like they were behind, and then now talking about it with you, I'm like, yeah, what the hell, guys? It's like they're yeah. trying too hard to be safe and make yeah. the right decisions. They don't want to take any risks, and it's kind of blowing up in their faces. I mean, because I'm sure they're getting the selling reports from like, like you said, like Sephora or whoever else they've worked with or, or, you know, they're seeing all the markdowns happening on these colors. And like, if you're trying to commodify your product and you're, you know, and the people you're partnering with are just like, we can't sell a single of this, this disgusting purple, like you need to get a different color. Like like it's now it's changing their decision-making because now it's not about you know, define, you know, a color that's defining, you know, a, a year is a color that works for the market, you know? It's like so fascinating, but it's mm-hmm. so true. It's, <laughs> I mean, but that's what you're getting into when, when you decide to, to, to pick a color of the year and then you try, you decide to like market it with a bunch of different brands. Like you're going to get this sort of backlash. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And on an interesting note here, you know, and this is the last I'm really talking um, about, the color of the year before Amanda moves into Pantone. Um, WGSN, one of the largest industry trend forecasting companies that I actually love love to refer to often, um, partnered with Coloro, another color service that's like Pantone. um, And they picked their color of the year for 2021, um, which they actually pick a year earlier. So this was chosen, 2021 was chosen in 2019. Um, so that their industry clients can actually develop into it. Um, and their choice is AI Aqua, which is like aqu- aqua color, um, a bright, pretty blue. Um, and they approach picking their color with significantly different criteria. Uh, they want a color that will be successful for their clients, you know? Mm-hmm. So they do tons and tons of trend research to land on their color. Um, and not that I'm saying Pantone doesn't. Um, I'm just, you know, they are the foremost formidable trend research company. So you would expect them to really understand what is happening in the market. Um, and they're, they're, the people that they work with that pay them a lot of money rely on them and expect to have a color that's going to sell. Mm-hmm. So according to an article in 2019 from D-Zine, who spoke to WGSN about their selection of the color is described by the brand as a positive hue that is both sporty and trend forward. When selecting a color, WGSN's research method involves examining significant developments within various industries, as well, you know, like Pantone, as socioeconomic conditions. WGSN's head of color, Jane Moonington Body, told DZine, going forward, technology is only going to become a more integral part of our lives. The digital world will become faster, more efficient, and in turn, we will become even more connected and aligned. When selecting AI Aqua, the team looked at particular trend in the arrival of 5G, which is actually kind of interesting because, you know, the, that article about that, the classic blue was talking about how they didn't want to see the blue. This is basically being like the blue is such a trend because everyone's looking at it. So 5G, mm-hmm. which is being rolled out 
um, to devices um, this year, you know, um, 2019, 2020, is set to be widely available 2021. The team found that the blue shades were popular for internet searches and for the branding of tech companies. Um, Moonington Body was a designer in the 1990s. So they, she understands how the market works. She, she understands like a buyer, like, you know, like, like us. Um, mm-hmm. what color means to industry. And she explains blue is a color that's always been commercial in fashion. You For always, sure. Always, For sure. You always have um, have to have a blue in your palette. She says that when she was a designer in the 1990s, she always had to include blue because it's sold, but it was never pinpointed as a fashion color. Whereas now it's coming through as a statement color and the tone aqua AI is a lot more digestible for more people. Um, They go on to say um, that since the mass obsession of millennial pink around 2016, people are much more accepting of color and even bright colors. And this one is, this is considered a bright color, this, this um, AI aqua um, these days than in the past where neutrals and blacks were reigning supreme. She says that bright colors are optimistic and happy and consumers are craving color more during these last few turbulent years. In fact, we found that rather than replacing black, sales of which remain strong, these colors are actually taking some of the market share that was previously occupied by neutral and natural colors, which is really fascinating that these colors, these brights are actually coming in and taking over you know, minimalism. I mean, it makes sense to me. I'm looking at a swatch of this color, like mm-hmm. putting my buyer's hat on. Mm-hmm. This looks like an easy sell. Mm-hmm. This reminds me of colors that I've bought into in the past that have been very successful. It's very wearable, but yet it has some punch. Mm-hmm. I think it's great. It would be amazing like to paint a room this color. Mm-hmm. I think it's great for commercial products like microwaves and mixers and baking sets. Yeah, like I think it's amazing. Totally. I think... I think you can – I looked at the Colorado website and I actually – if I were Pantone, I would be feeling the heat because I feel mm-hmm. like it's got a younger, more relevant vibe across the board. I do not like the name AI Aqua. It's sort of cheesy. But I can see from looking at their site that they're a lot more like with it. Pantone feels stodgy and out of date to me. Yeah. Yeah. They. They. I mean – I mean, I was actually really interested in what you came up with about the history of Pantone because I don't under I don't know what where they come up with their colors and how they they do their trend research. You know, obviously WGSN is, you know, it is a com- completely you know global brand um, and and partner to all industries, and mm-hmm. they do massive massive amounts of trend research. Yeah, you know, I mean, I feel like back in the day Pantone did. I don't think they do in the same way that WGSN does now. And I think mm-hmm. that's a big part of it. And I also feel that WGSN looks high and low. So they're not just yeah. looking at runway fashion. They're looking at like what people are actually wearing. Like they they reference street style and emerging trends. Whereas I think Pantone gets really obsessed with kind of the more like high end and they think that that – it's like that – it's kind of an old-timey attitude, like Miranda Presley saying, like, the color begins on the runway, and then it trickles down to the department stores, and then it finds its way into people's closets. And I think WGSN, especially over the last 10 years, has realized that fashion trends come from the top and from the bottom. You know what I mean? Yes. And that exactly. if you want to be successful as a trend forecaster, as a retailer, you need to be looking at street style and – you know, the runways and kind of blending them together. 
and just out of the box, it's just like, what are people seeing? What are they thinking? Like, it's not even just, yeah, just, just fashion it's not just trends. clothes. I think that yeah. that's where a lot of retailers miss the boat is that they are just too busy looking at the runways and yes. being like, this is what we're supposed to wear this year. And no one's ever saying like, hey, have you seen what people are into this year? What they're thinking yeah. about, what they're reading, the music they're listening to, the movies they're watching, because these things all have so much power over how we dress, like you can't ignore the cultural aspect of trends, which I feel like is what we talk about a lot here, right? Absolutely. Yeah. And when's the last time you've looked at a runway? Oh, you know what? It's like this year I've been like, I don't give a fuck. Like, I, don't, I mean, does anyone? I, I feel bad saying that because I know so much work goes into it. Dude, I mean, I will tell you that like at my last job, my boss was strictly looking at runway for trends that we should buy into. And sometimes I was like, this, no, like this is not, this isn't going to work. This right. is why, like if this is too crazy or this is too difficult to digest or unflattering, you know what I mean? Like there was a time mm -hmm. when media was different where you mm -hmm. would look to the runway shows. But now I can see outfits on Instagram, you yes. know? Yes, and like like put together in a way that's accessible mm -hmm. and wearable. Exactly. And yeah, and I think that the runway. I don't know. I mean, like the runway in fashion, it just it is it, it's 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 speaking a different language than what we're you know we're digesting right now. Yeah, and it might. Who knows what's going to happen in two thousand twenty one? You know, like maybe it'll maybe things will change a little bit more. And I will also say, I mean, there was that article that went around, did the rounds. I don't know in like May about how you know fashion was kind of falling apart in twenty twenty and had been for quite a while. Yes, and yes. part of it was that all these designers were expected to churn out twice as many collections. Mm -hmm. And I feel like we saw the vision and the like. I don't know. We saw the collection's just not as good. They weren't as strong and directional and inspirational because they were coming out so much. Yes, they you can't meaning. keep up. Yeah. It was like mm -hmm. you could see designers clearly recycling ideas. And it was like, from my point of view, and maybe this is a little cynical, I could see that and be like, why would we bring that back again right now? Mm -hmm. It's just like you couldn't figure out what to do. And I think 2020 – could be a really great reboot for the industry to go back to being able to like narrow the focus and really put more time into it if we cut out some of these collections. And we could see runway shows returning to their glory, you know? But I yeah. look at them now and I'm like, oh, you're still doing 70s? Fucking cool. Like, who cares? <laughs> I know. You're like, I just see this. It just looks like the same thing over and over again. And it's it's unaccessible. It's unaffordable. Yeah, totally. You know? Totally. And yeah, yeah, I, I'm like, what do I wear now? <laughs> I'm like, no, I wear so distanced from runway trends and fashion mm -hmm. magazines barely exist now, right? And we were talking before we started recording about how fashion blogs don't even really exist right now. They're just trying to sell you stuff. And where yeah. I find the things that appeal to me and inspire me are like on Instagram, on Pinterest, yeah. seeing what, like even Tumblr still, like seeing like cottagecore for example do you yeah. think that was on pantone's radar it's got to no. be the biggest trend of 2020 mm -hmm. i see it making its way into the mainstream right now you know? oh yeah yeah no people are doing their their runway shows they all have the laura ashley print. now it's all yeah so here's mm -hmm. a great example of the trend coming from the bottom 
and going to the top. And so by the time the runway shows are showing it, you're like, nah, I already did that. I'm moving on. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, what's 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 post what's post cottagecore? I've I've got my like my my ear to ground, and I'm so, I'm so I'm so um, curious to see what's going to come out of the pandemic. And it doesn't seem like anyone's like it like because those are, that's coming from Gen Z, you know, and like yeah, that's not they're not looking at the runways for this. No, I mean, you know, do they look at the runways? I I feel like it's like a dinosaur at this point. Mm-hmm. I can't even think of any runway brands that feel young enough. Yeah. You know, like in the '90s and the early aughts, there were runway shows that were actually like designers who were young people who were engaging in the culture and the society and like having amazing parties, totally. and, you know, being cool and putting in the coolest music and like I, just all the stuff. And like that doesn't exist now. Like as influencers, they were influencers and now they were influencers and now they're not. And now, now people just want influencers to influence them. I know. I know. I mean, if my understanding of the cycle of trends is correct, I think Cottagecore is going to hang on in 2021, but mm-hmm. I can see I, – I like, as I've said before, mod is what's next. Yeah. For sure. Interesting. Uh, that's exciting. I'll bet money on it. That is very exciting. <laughs> I did – yeah. I have seen a couple mod looks even today. So, yes. I, yeah. Yeah, it's coming. Very exciting. Very. Well, let's get into the history of Pantone, which to me, I, I didn't know anything. I don't – Pantone has always been around – I had no idea where it came from, so it was it was kind of a fun odyssey to go on and try to figure this out. So and that's what usually happens with a lot of these. Is that we, yeah, yeah, totally. we have no idea what we're about to get into. No, totally not at all. It was so fascinating, and I was telling Kim before we started recording that I read so many articles this week about Pantone that I didn't even know where to begin. It like took me a long time to get my thoughts in order. So. Let's travel back in time to a time when pantyhose was a daily essential. It's going to come up in our stories. When cars were huge, when the bulk of advertising was in print, we're talking the era of magazines and catalogs and billboards and just so much stuff printed on paper. So Pantone began in New Jersey in the 1950s as a commercial printing company. Uh, and it was owned by two brothers, Mervyn and Jesse Levine uh, of M&J Levine Advertising. That was what Pantone began as. Sounds very 50s. That's Very great. 50s. I know. So it, very, very East Coast 50. Uh, yeah, East Coast 50. Yeah, it's very East Coast 50. Good old M&J Levine mm-hmm. Advertising. So it wasn't the color empire that we know it as now, right? They were both, the Levine brothers, they were both advertising executives, not graphic artists, not color gurus, not chemists. You know, they were just there kind of helping people print out all their pamphlets and calendars and coupons, you name it, all the things. So much stuff was on paper. In 1956, they hired a recent Hofstra University graduate named Lawrence Herbert. And this was just a part-time employee you know, to kind of help them print stuff, basically. Well, he had a chemistry background. His job was to systematize and simplify the company's stock of pigments and production of colored ink. And this was a complicated job, which we'll get into in a bit. But he was so good at this that by 1962, this part-time employee became full-time and was running the ink and printing division at a profit while the commercial display division, which was being run by the Levine brothers, was 
$50,000 in debt. Now, I know by 2020 standards, that doesn't sound like much because most people are in debt like $90,000 for their student loans. But that was actually the equivalent of half a million dollars in 2021. So this was like a lot of money to be in debt. The Levine brothers were kind of like, we want to get out of this. We're, We're frightened by the amount of debt that we have here. So somehow... Lawrence Herbert, that former part-time employee, raised $50,000 and purchased the entire company and its technological assets from the brothers. And he renamed the company Pantone. He Mm -hmm. saw at that point that the future was color and systemizing it and inks and just, he felt that color was the future of that industry rather than just printing stuff. He was kind of like, you know, everyone can print stuff. So smart. So smart. So one day in the early 60s, while he was driving to work, probably in an enormous car, he was pondering a better, more consistent way to systemize color. You see, he had recently produced a display card for a pantyhose display that was intended to help customers choose the right shades for them. And this had been just a brutal process for him because There were no inks in existence at that point that matched exactly. So he had to literally mix all the colors by hand himself to match each pantyhose swatch. And at that point, there was no consistency between ink manufacturers anyway. So you could order taupe or wheat from like five different companies and receive five totally different colors. So it also made even just hand mixing these colors really challenging. Like no one had called for a uniformity of color at all in any industry. Hmm. And so in general, companies were kind of wasting a lot of time, whether they were dyeing fabric, mixing colors for cosmetics, mixing inks, house paints, anything, because it was just impossible to ask someone for a color and get it at first pass. It's just really, really challenging. And then you'd have to find that recipe and hope that you could duplicate it again for another customer. It's just not even sustainable at all. Yeah. It just wasn't. And, and he was sort of like, people are losing a lot of time. Mm-hmm. He's losing time. He's like hand mixing swatches. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Apparently this pantyhose yeah. project was so brutal. He was mm-hmm. like, okay, this cannot happen again. So as far as he saw it, and he literally – had this light bulb moment as he was driving to work thinking about these pantyhose. He felt that they needed to create a numbered system that would universalize every single color and then every person could have a copy of that color and you could ask them, I want color three, and they would know exactly what you meant and you would get exactly number three. This is something like we take for granted now, whether it's with paint chips If you're going to go paint your house, you can go pick the card off the display, tell them the number, and they'll mix it up, you know, the same way that, like, in our industry and graphic design and whatnot, you just rip out the Pantone chip and share it with the vendor. This did not exist at that time, and it kind of almost blows my mind, actually. Yeah. He said, if somebody in New York wanted something printed in Tokyo, they would simply open up the book and say, give me Pantone 123, and 123, which might be a daffodil yellow, would look exactly the same the world over. So he went back to his office and he created a sample page to show how the system worked. And he sent it off to ink makers and it it caught on. You know, he still has a copy of that page hanging in his office where he now lives in Palm Beach. 
And this took off like almost immediately. It wasn't even a tough sell because people who worked in the advertising and printing industry were like, finally, finally, we can make our lives easier. They were really, (laughs) really excited. By the 70s, Pantone was making more than a million dollars a year off of licensing its color system. So at this point, they weren't even like making all the books and tchotchkes and stuff that we're going to get to. They were just licensing sort of these guides they just that like, you could. They revolutionized the whole system. That is so amazing. Totally, totally. They called it the Pantone matching system, which has the very unfortunate abbreviation PMS. <laughs> oh, gosh. <laughs> Herbert said... We had a consultant who would get a committee together and find out, for example, what colors were showing up in Milan, what colors were showing up in Paris. It seems that a lot of designers all decide that coffee brown might be a good color the same year. So this goes back to my theory that at least in the beginning, Pantone was strictly looking at like runway and that kind of stuff. They were going at the high end. And once again, back then, runway did dictate all of clothing for everyone, right? Even if it took a few years to trickle down. So in the, like, what is it now, like, uh, close to 60 years since Pantone emerged on the scene, it's formulated 1,867 colors for graphic designers who create logos, print publications, product packaging. It's around you. It's being used on everything you look at. There are more than 2,000 Pantone colors for fashion and interior designers, and It's important to call out that there's a different set of color swatches for all of these different industries. Mm -hmm. So while the Pantone system was originally created for advertising and printing, it's been adapted for food science, plastics, paints, textiles, even some really strange uses. For example, it was used to define the color of a Ben & Jerry's brownie. Wow. To ensure consistency in ice cream ingredient production. And- I mean, that's what Pantone is really about, right? It's consistency. It's creating a language of color that everyone can understand. I I mean, I use it. I have two Pantone books sitting here right next to me. I use it for color matching all the time. Yeah, Mm -hmm. you use them constantly, right? Herbert said, I have matched color charts for wine. I matched color charts for Mm. anemia blood samples and for walnuts and strawberries and goldfish because all these things might be like, for example, you might work in a blood clinic of some sort, and there's going to be a poster on the wall that you'll Mm. match the colors to to check for anemia. Well, let's make sure all of those colors are universalized. Otherwise, you're all going to get different feelings on this, right? Different results. Um, Calvin Klein kept a Pantone chip in his kitchen to signal to his chef what color he wanted his coffee to be. That's amazing. I mean, that's that's the like rich (laughs) people are the worst, but... It does ensure consistency, right? And I think that's what's amazing about Pantone. Now, everybody knows Tiffany's iconic Robin's Egg Blue boxes, right? Like that is their signature color. Well, that was actually created by Pantone. And the color, the PMS color is 1837, which was the brand's founding year. This color is trademarked and... It's not available in any of the Pantone books or wands because it's exclusive to them. It it remains one of the most well-recognized brand color associations in the world. You know, having a brand-specific color sounds silly, um, and it must be super expensive if it's developed by Pantone. I can't even imagine. It's got to be like a fortune. 
But studies have indicated that color is very important to customers when making decisions. I read this really dry study from the Secretariat of the Seoul International Color Expo in 2004 that said that almost 93% of people said that they put most importance on visual factors when purchasing products, which I could have told you myself. Um, Yes, of course. (laughs) Right. Only about 6% said that the physical feel via the sense of touch was most important. Hearing and smell were less than 1%. So it's all about the appearance here. When asked to approximate the importance of color when buying products, almost 85% of the total respondents think that color accounts for more than half among the various factors important for choosing products. Mm -hmm. So more and more brands over the years have been picking that brand-defining color. There's Starbucks green, the Hermes orange, the red on the sole of a pair of Louboutins, uh, Coca-Cola's red. They're all Pantone customized colors under trademark protection. So you won't see any of those in any of the books either. And five people in the whole world, these are people who have a lot of money to spend, have had their own Pantone colors developed for them. Hmm. Jay-Z has a pearlescent blue. Uh, Real estate CEO Sherry Chris has a bright pink. (laughs) Fashion designer Jason Wu chose a gray. And the late... British fashion designer Richard Nicoli has an elegant blue. And of course, Prince has his own shade of purple called Love Symbol Mm -hmm. Number Two. Pantone is everywhere controlling the colors we see all around us. I mean, obviously, you know, Kim's already uh, introduced you to the color industrial (laughs) complex that is is Pantone of the Year. But I mean, they they do find a lot of clever ways to re, to remain culturally relevant and kind of promote the brand that is Pantone. Uh, you know, we've all got Crown Fever thanks to yes. the Netflix show, yes. and I found that for the Queen's Diamond Jubilee in 2012, that was in honor of 60 years as Queen. Uh, Pantone worked with ad agency Leo Burnett to release a limited edition color guide inspired by Queen Elizabeth's fashion-forward color statements, specifically her love of monochromatic dressing. Mm. Uh, This one, I have no feelings about either way, but it (laughs) kind of shows how, not not the crown, but the next one I'm going to talk about, how Pantone gets into everything, and that is the development of Minions Yellow. Really? Yes. So for the release of the Minions movie in 2015, Pantone partnered with Universal Pictures to create an animated character-inspired color, which was Pantone's first new color release in three years. The chosen hue is meant to exude hope, joy, and optimism because Pantone believes that that's the only thing that yellow can inspire, not pee or uh, (laughs) bananas or jaundice, you know? Such, they're so hung up on like yellow's a hopeful color, Mm -hmm. right? In 2020, Pantone got a little, a little bit more modern. They partnered with health brand Intamina to create an active and adventurous red color to start a positive conversation around periods. Yes, I saw that. That's kind of crazy. I mean, it's really cool. The blood red hue, which I will say is a really flattering shade of red, is presented on a Pantone branded card with the outline of like the uterus and the ovaries with a menstrual cup inside, like in the graphic. I mean, that's kind of amazing, right? Isn't it, isn't it called 
it's called period red, isn't it? Or is it? Yes. Yeah. I think it's just called period actually. Okay. Um, and I think that's, that's pretty woke for Pantone. Oh, woke. Now the Pantone library is constantly evolving, especially as technology around producing colors and materials has changed. In 2020, Pantone kind of went hard on a bunch of new colors. They added 315 colors to its library. Oh, interesting. I know, including 50 new shades of pink. Yeah. A color that the brand believes has, quote, embraced new meanings and relevance beyond its traditional gendered and childlike status, which I absolutely agree with. I think how we feel about pink has changed a lot. Among them are First Blush, Viva Magenta, and this one's kind of creepy, Tender Touch. Oh my gosh. What color? Is that like a light pink? Yeah, of course Like a blush? Yeah. Yes. Yes. More than 70 new blues were also added, which I think is Blue is always a seller, like Kim talked about. Blue is just it. I'm pretty sure I read a while back that blue is the most common f- a favorite color. It is. I was literally reading it today. There's an article in like the New York Times, or it's like, and that that came out in like 2017, like you were saying. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the Pantone is getting with it in certain ways. Some of the cooler hues, like f- Frozen Fjord nod to icy natural landscapes, mm-hmm. while brighter green-infused shades like Exotic Plume and Gulf Coast are meant to evoke a more summery, tropical feel. They also added some like more neutral shades uh, because, and I think this is true, Pantone thinks that they are, quote, too often seen as single color, but can offer endless subtleties. So they added colors mm-hmm. like Weathered Teak and Island Fossil. I'll be honest that yes, they do offer a lot of them, and there are they are a lot. There's a lot of nuances. It is really hard to pick between like different various eggshells. It is, or when you're like on the tote pages, you're like, I don't know, this yeah. one's greener than the other one. Yeah, exactly. Uh, you're like, let me let me go stand in the sun, and see if I can get a better a totally, better perspective you on this. Have to go stand because <laughs> it looks different under artificial lighting. So. Mm-hmm. It is that kind of is a great segue into this idea of like how many colors is too many colors, right? Uh, I was reading one article about the addition of all these new colors, and I, I, you know, I always have to read the comment section, and mm-hmm. I found this really great comment from a user named GeoBob, whose avatar is a jester. He said. <laughs> And I think this whole thing is snarky, I I think. I'm sure designers have been waiting for all these shades with bated breath, but it brings to mind the famous scene in the 1948 film, Mr. Blanding's Builds His Dream House, where Myrna Lois spends ages explaining the subtle color scheme she wants. A soft green, not as blue-green as a robin's egg, not just yellow, a very gay yellow, etc., etc., only for the decorator to declare that he got it. Red, green, blue, yellow, white. (laughs) <laughs> I thought that was pretty funny. I like that. So let's talk about a little update. I love an update on the hero of our story, Lawrence Herbert. Well, he's retired now and he lives in Palm Beach. He says, God created the world in seven days. And on the eighth day, he called Pantone to put color into it. Oh my gosh. That he's, is such a founder quote. It is. It is. But I... You know, I go down all these weird rabbit holes on the internet and I found, well, he turned 90 in 2019 and I have to share some tidbits from this article I found about his birthday weekend 
from the society pages of the Palm Beach Day. Yes. This is how hard I go on this stuff. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to actually read some direct quotes from this article because the way it's written is so society page that I could never do a better job than this. Larry Herbert of Palm Beach and New York did exactly that, starting with a Moroccan party at the (gasps) Colony on a Friday night, March 1st, which turned its courtyard into a souk, except that instead of spices or textiles or pottery, each tent was a food station with kebabs or tangine or couscous. Oh, yeah. There were belly dancers, the rich fragrance of midi spices in the air, and even a camel. Stop. First time I've seen a camel at the colony, said one guest. <laughs> That's not it. That was just the first night of his this birthday weekend. This is so millennial of he him. He knows how to weekend. party. Yes, totally. yes. On Saturday, March 2nd, several hundred guests turned up at the, this is an unfortunate location, mm. the Mar-a-Lago Club for a Gatsby-themed bash and entertainment that was pretty much a compilation of every musical genre since Og the Caveman pounded two sticks together. (laughs) Jazz, disco, rap, swing, big band, and each one accompanied by dancers performing everything from the Charleston to the hustle. And nonagenarian, meaning 90 years old, Larry and his squeeze, Valentina Craver, who is 40 years his junior. No. I know. We're tearing up the dance floor for almost every tune. The birthday cake was a giant concoction covered with little tiles representing every Pantone color. That oh. wasn't the end, though. Sunday, March 3rd, was brunch at the Breakers with all of its fabulous food, endless mimosas, and the sound of the waves pounding on the shore. Wow. How did he keep up? I know what – I mean, this guy, he's I would have been exhausted. <laughs> so what about Pantone? Like, what's going on there? Well, x a supplier of color measurement instruments and software, purchased Pantone for $180 million in 2007. Oh, interesting. Then, I know. Five years later, industrial conglomerate Danaher Corporation paid $625 million to wow. acquire x right uh, Oh, my God. And there, uh, the speculation out there, because most of this deal is very private, these are two mm-hmm. privately owned companies, is that the real cash cow there was Pantone. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, interestingly, Danaher is a mega company that primarily mm-hmm. owns health and science-related brands. It makes sense in a weird way because Pantone is all about science. Now, selling books of color chips is a massive business. Pantone recommends that designers replace color specimen books annually, which in my experience doesn't really happen. No, never. The books are so expensive. A complete set of color specification books for graphic designers cost $1,620. You can tear these little perforated chips out of this book to share with vendors and designers, but eventually you will run out. Mm-hmm. Fashion designers pay more than $7,000 for a Pantone cotton swatch library. And then this is the budget version. It's the one I've used the most. It's like a wand. Nothing to tear out and share here, but at least you can share the number of the shade. And that Mm -hmm. is $300. I actually had a job. It was one of the worst jobs I've ever had where I had to pay for one of these out of my pocket because the CEO of the company who 
felt that marketing was significantly more important than product and considered the company to be a marketing first brand, would not buy a Pantone watch, didn't see the point of it. Wow. That's I know. insane. I mean, it's, it's so insane. It's, it's just part of the business. I know. I know. And it's really important. Well, we just said 85% of, of customer, um, of, of customers de- depend on color for their, their color cho- or their, for their choice. Sorry. I said that all very weird, but, <laughs> but it's true. It's true. Yeah. Color is so important and getting it right. When you're developing clothing, it's like so important mm-hmm. to streamline that conversation by giving a Pantone number. So you both know what you're expecting instead of saying, can I see something that's a greenish blue? Because that is a whole spectrum. You might get mint, you might get teal, you might get forest green. So mm-hmm. it's it's very, very important. Now, as I said, the current owner of Pantone isn't publicly traded. So we don't have any view into how much money that brand makes every year. But we can assume it's a lot because Pantone has shifted from being just a tool. I mean, it still is. And a name recognizable to only designers and industry insiders to a virtually household name through so many big name collabs and the like what I call the mainstreamification of design and aesthetic. Think yeah. like magazines like Dwell, Tumblr, Pinterest. This combination has made Pantone a huge brand. And so Pantone has been able to cash in on their name with their own line of products. For example, some pretty cute Pantone fan folding chairs. Those are cute. They retail for $90. Mm-hmm. Pantone ornaments, mugs, notebooks, iPhone cases, passport cases, children's books. Pantone has made it all over the years. You can find some of it on their site under Pantone Lifestyle. You know, do you need the stuff? Probably not, but I can see how it sells because being knowledgeable of Pantone, you know, via owning a Pantone branded knickknack can show the world that you are an aesthetic creative person who is in the know. It's also really good for the gift market. This is like really giftable. Oh yeah, for sure. For sure. Pick a color that represents someone to you. Well, or also the, um, you know, there's the, uh, the museum market. It's like the museum gift shop market is really, really big. And this is perfect for that. This is such a museum gift shop kind of thing. So we talked a little bit about the Pantone and Sephora collab, which is what really thrust the brand into households across America and not just like people who worked in creative career paths, right? The first Sephora and Pantone Universe collection was released in 2011 with Tangerine Tango. It was a huge hit. It was an orangey, corally color, and it paved the path for many successful collections. But like I said, it was really hard for me to confirm the last year of that collab and why it ended, but I'm pretty sure based on a whole sorts a, a whole set of googling by process of elimination <laughs> that the last year was 2018 the year of ultraviolet yep that's the barney purple yes yes i once again could not find a reason but i was telling kim that anecdotally i think it's because sales sl- slowed over the years mm-hmm. because if you recall ultraviolet was preceded by greenery <laughs> <laughs> been that, there was that Marsala year. Like, what are you doing with that? 
I mean, that's really 90s and 90s wasn't in. No, it was like too soon. So mm-hmm. I would see the sales section on Sephora just full of all of these Pantone Universe collabs. Uh, some of those colors were just harder to sell than others. And I think at that point, customers were more focused on the prestige brands. And to be sure, all of those prestige brands were making colors influenced by Pantone anyway. I saw so many greenery eyeshadows out there. Wait, can I ask a question? So uh-huh. was this, this collaboration was just about the color of the year or did they actually feature other colors that would be actually sellable? They would, like, it was a mixture of both. They would build palettes around that color of the year, and it would be colors that would complement it. And I'm going to tell you, it was some kooky combinations. And it was eyeshadow, or was it lipstick, or was it it everything? It was a whole rigmarole. So there would be a palette of, like, eyeshadows where Mm -hmm. the key color in it would be the color of the year, and then others that were complementary to it. Kermit green. (laughs) Exactly. Depending on the color that year. like. For example, ultraviolet totally made lipstick and nail color out of it, right? Yeah. Kermit green, maybe not, mm-hmm. but there would be eyeliner and just entire makeup looks built around supporting that color. And it just, mm-hmm. I don't know, it just, it was hard. I, the color palettes were very aspirational. I'll tell you that. Yeah. There was always a lot of weird oranges and blues that are very challenging to wear on your face. Uh put in there to support greenery or whatever it was. I mean, I can, I can imagine like, you know, like, okay, there's someone in the, in the collaboration office, you know, and then there's someone in the, um, uh, in the color of the year office and, you know, they're, they're competing for, for different end goals. And, you know, the person that that's, that's, that's deciding the color of the year is like, I don't care about the collaboration. (laughs) I'm picking this color because it means this, this, this. And the like the collaborations person is like, like, but Sephora is going to kill us if we pick Kermit Green. You know, I can just like imagine these. It had to be right. Uh It had to be. That is such a tough color. And so was ultraviolet. Ultraviolet, Yeah. That ultraviolet was chosen in effect to be, more cosmetic friendly. Like, I really believe that. It was an attempt to be more cosmetic friendly, but it just wasn't there because it was a weird shade of purple. It's garish. Like, People don't garish. wear purple. It's it's just, it's not there yet. Maybe in a couple of years. I don't know. But right now it's not. It's very uncool. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. And there's no way that they didn't have like the best year ever, the year they had Rose Quartz mm-hmm. and Serenity because those are beautiful. You can do so much with them, but everything before and after that for a few years was really, really rough. So the last thing I want to talk about in terms of Pantone and all the products and weirdness around it is something called color astrology. Yes. Yes. Now, this is hilarious. I know. I, the things you stumble upon on the internet never cease to amaze me. Mm-hmm. So perhaps you have found that astrology is failing you. (laughs) Perhaps the power of the planets isn't enough for you and you want to summon the power of the Pantone universe. (laughs) Well, then color astrology is for you. Now, Michelle Bernhardt, who describes herself as a healer and a metaphysician, wrote Color Astrology, which blends astrology, numerology, and color theory to define a person's birthday color and align it with a specific Pantone color. This is the official description, and I love it. 
written by renowned astrologer Michelle Bernhardt using the numbers and color schemes of Pantone Inc., the global authority on color. This system features 366 birthday colors that illustrate who we are and how we behave. Using color astrology, you'll quickly understand how to enhance your best personality traits with your birthday color. I mean, I couldn't get a grasp on how effective this is without reading some Amazon reviews, right? Oh, I mean, that's, oh, that's how I vet everything, right? So there were actually a lot of really good reviews. And I want to say that overall, the score on this was very high, like almost at perfect. Here's one review. One of my favorite gifts to give for birthdays or celebrations. This book is eerie in its ability to pin down the personality traits of a person and inform them of the color they should have around them in order to become more complete and have a happier life. I mean, this sounds amazing, right? Mm -hmm. It doesn't mean you have to look good in that color or have to wear it, but if it happens to complement your skin tone, it's a good idea. I painted my living room astral purple because that was my color. This sounds nightmarish to me. <laughs> purple, yeah. You also receive three different birthdays that are your compatible birthdays. Each day is distinct in its description of the person born on that day and doesn't repeat itself. Well, that's good. Crazy correct and inv- individualistic, if you believe that all pe- people in the world only fall into 366 different categories. But- Anyway, I was like, I'm pretty sold on this. But, you know, you got to read the bad reviews, too. On the other end of the review spectrum, I found this, which is I, – I wish I could convey to you all the typos and spelling errors and weirdness of this one. It almost reads like a haiku. Yeah, it's only color book. You should take it if you want to paint your house because there are a lot of good colors with lack information. <laughs> and they repeat that if you're wearing clothes color that for the same from your birthday color – you well, you well be more sexy, and blah blah blah. Uh, that mo- that means I will wear the same clothes for all my life. I didn't like it. It's only worth five dollars. <laughs> also, I saw another review where someone was like, "Hate this book. My birthday color is my least favorite color." Oh wow! Yeah. Have well, you, did you look up your birthday color? No, but I do have some good news. Mm-hmm. I hear this book's only worth $5. I found it on thriftbooks.com for $5, including shipping, and I have ordered it. You so, have. Yes. So when it arrives, which will be in about 14 business days, maybe less, I will give us each a live on-the-air reading of our color. And it will change our lives because we will wear that color every day for the rest of our lives. I think it'll be interesting. And uh, one person did complain that the color families, as they are presented in color astrology, don't apply to how we traditionally look at different astrological colors. And I'm not 100% certain what that means, but this person was very disturbed by that. Oh, okay. That this person called themselves a professional astrologist and couldn't pick the right colors. (laughs) Anyway, I mean, because people are really emotional about your color. And what if you look it up and you get that crappy yellow, <laughs> you know? I know. I know. So I can't I can't wait. So that'll be coming soon. Um, but that brings me to the end of the Pantone story, which I guess is the end of this episode. 
Absolutely. That's so fascinating. And I mean, and as we were mentioning, you know, Amanda and I, when we first, you know, when we start developing these episodes out, we kind of, we essentially write down like four sentences and we're like, <laughs> okay, why don't you look at this and this and this and then, well, I'll look at this and this and this. And then we go away and over the week we kind of work on it and we just fall into these like crazy K-holes that of just so much information and really interesting stuff that these these episodes just become enormous. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's kind of crazy. So we will be back with another episode where we're going to talk about some of the colors that defined the some generations, specifically generations of people we know. <laughs> Yeah. We're not going back like that far in time, but I think it's really interesting to see how this color impacts us. I'll also be talking a little bit about some color trends that are happening right now too. Yes. So see you next week. All right. See ya. Bye. Bye.